0: Amen. Oh, the subject tonight, understanding the tribulation. Uh, even when I uh, announced this some weeks back, uh, calling something the tribulation brings to mind various, uh, very popular and common views where you might have thought, well, seven year tribulation. This is what often the word tribulation is connected to with regard to end times matters. And uh, so, part of our outline tonight, which is in five parts, We want to consider the popular understanding of the tribulation, consider which biblical passages are marshaled to support that, and then I want to look at the historical origin of this view. Uh, Fourthly, I want to offer different and what I think are stronger interpretations of those earlier passages from part two, and then I want to consider a reframing of the notion of tribulation. And so to begin with the popular understanding of the tribulation, I have in blue and black uh, the, the typical and classical outline for how uh, we, we uh, find this view of rapture and seven-year tribulation and millennium outline, okay? So looking at this... Um, what, we're, what we're noticing on this chart, and uh, there are all sorts of charts that can get much more detailed than this one, but I'm hoping that this will give us the, the flyover, okay, the flyover of, uh, of the layout. Um, what I'm looking at is that the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus um, are part of what will now be considered in what follows the age of the church. Those which follow Jesus Jewish and Gentile believers are part of this church age. Christ has ascended and poured out his spirit. He's marked out his people. And uh, during these uh, years of the church age, uh, Christ reigns as king. The people of God are indwelt by his Holy Spirit. Uh, How long is the church age? Well, in this particular view about the future... That number is unknown. Uh, We would still be considered in the church age, and it's been going on since the first century with the work of Christ by his Holy Spirit. But at some point, what this uh, timeline would would, uh, hold out is that the church of Jesus Christ living in this age on earth will be removed in a sudden catching away of our very selves, our soul and body removed in an event called the rapture. In a previous um, discussion about this, uh, as you may remember some weeks back, I discussed the origin of this view. And what I tried to demonstrate historically is that the uh, idea of a catching away of the church of Jesus Christ cannot be something taught Earlier than the 1800s, so in, in uh, the big scheme of church history, the idea of a secret taking away of the church is not something you fi- find in creeds and confessions in church history, but rather is something quite new in uh, in, in the perspective of uh, Christian doctrinal development. Uh, so, the rapture of the church and uh, followed immediately. By a seven year tribulation. I probably referenced the idea of a seven year tribulation last time, but uh, we want to be mindful of how much we're taking in at one given point. I'm not trying to do everything all in one sitting together on a Wednesday night. So tonight, rather than dealing with the rapture in focus, I want to deal with what the teaching of this timeline says the rapture brings about. And it's this idea of a seven year tribulation. And so the secret taking away of the church would be followed by a seven year tribulation. And my question tonight is, is that true? Is is a seven-year tribulation what the Bible teaches? That would be followed by the second coming of Christ that brings an end to the seven-year tribulation. So in this layout of the future, the seven-year tribulation culminates in the second coming. Uh, The second coming of Christ would then be followed by an earthly reign from Jerusalem called the thousand-year or millennial reign of Christ... I'm not talking about the millennium at all tonight. We'll do that on a different Wednesday night. Uh, But tonight, just focusing on this this middle piece here, a seven-year tribulation. This is the popular understanding. Uh, In this view of a seven-year tribulation, the rapture is what inaugurates it, and the second coming of Christ is what completes it. But the church of Jesus Christ in this layout of the future is not part of the seven-year tribulation. The the, the teaching would be that the church is raptured before this tribulation. You might hear this sometimes phrased the pre-tribulational rapture. If you've you've heard that full phrase before, that means the rapture would be pre or before the tribulation. So this scheme of uh, the future is arguing for a pre-tribulational rapture and that seven-year tribulation the church does not experience. Um, During the tribulation, it is said that the judgments of the seals, trumpets, and bowls of Revelation would be poured out upon those dwelling on earth. And that would be Revelation chapter 6 through 16. And so in this scheme of the future, the seven-year tribulation uh, would encompass Revelation 6 to 16, a series of judgments, seals, trumpets, and bowls. Also, a figure that plays prominently in a seven-year tribulation scheme would be the figure known as the Antichrist, who appears at the beginning of the tribulation, wins the widespread support of people around him, and uh, makes a covenant with the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel. Um, then that covenant is broken halfway through the tribulation, and so the tribulation in seven years is divided into two, three-and-a-half periods. Sometimes this second half is called the Great Tribulation. So it's as if whatever started halfway through, as bad as that could be, the second half would be far worse. And if you've heard the phrase Great Tribulation, that's referring to the second half of these seven years. So this is the popular understanding of it. Even as I articulate it, I'm reminded of how complex it is. This is... an understanding of the future that requires looking at multiple passages in the Old and New Testaments to put together a certain view of the future. My argument last time we were together on a topic of the end times on the rapture is that the rapture teaching is not the best read of the biblical evidence, and it does not have strong historical support in the history of the church. And therefore, we should lean toward other views uh, about the coming of Christ and what will happen with the church. Now, we have these kinds of discussions as believers. So we all know people, and I have people who are friends and even extended family members, who uh, look at this differently. And that's okay. This is an in-house discussion. This is not a primary issue. However, it does deal with biblical texts. You deal with passage from Daniel or a passage from Revelation, and someone is offering an interpretation of it. Throughout church history, there is a reason why why detailed end times views have not been parts of the creeds. They say things like, we believe in the coming of Christ to judge the living and the dead. And then there's a lot of room for trying to read some of the more peculiar texts. Um, Here at Cosmosdale, uh, we have not avoided these texts. Um, The popular understanding of uh, the tribulation and end times views deal with the book of Daniel, uh, the book of Revelation, and parts of the first three gospels, the parts known as the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. Now in my time here, um, I've preached through the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation and all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John dealing with each of the discourses. So you're not surprised I have strong opinions on this issue. <laughs> We've looked at these texts together uh, over a wide number of years. Um, but it is helpful, I think, to not be in a particular passage sometimes and to look at something in a, in a more focused way uh, as an issue rather than only on a passage. And so that's our goal tonight. With this popular understanding of the tribulation in front of us, what are the biblical passages used to support it? And I want to pull one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. If you were to say, where does a seven-year tribulation come from? The, The combination of passages is mainly from Daniel 9 and Matthew 24. Daniel 9, 24 through 27, talks about... Someone making a strong covenant with many for one week. Daniel 9, you might remember, is part of a large, complex view of weeks of years known as Daniel's 70 weeks wading into that chapter is not for the faint of heart for anyone interpreting and preaching it because it is one of the most difficult passages in the Old Testament to interpret. Um, Now, I do have uh, leanings about understanding the verses in Daniel 9, but uh, I haven't always held the same interpretations and readings of those verses. And that's because there are good arguments from multiple angles to consider. But the seven-year tribulation comes from Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. And the idea of this future view of, the, of uh, the, the timeline is that 69 of those 70 weeks have been completed up to the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. So that the 69th week has been, uh, has been now paused with progress and we await the 70th week. In, in other words, Daniel 9.27 views these weeks to represent weeks of years. And so 70 weeks represents 70 times seven, equaling a number of years. I don't want to overly complicate considerations into Daniel 9, but it's just to say, let's take that 70th week. A week is made up of seven days. If each of those days represent a year, then you're dealing with a seven-year period that that 70th week represents. So where does the seven-year tribulation come from? The 70th week of Daniel. That's the short of it. The 70th week of Daniel. But something is is happening in this view. The 69 weeks are kept as fulfilled behind us. And there is now a gap. We're dealing with a gap. A gap of how wide? Well, uh, because the rapture of the church has not taken place, we don't know. We actually don't know how wide this gap will be. So far, the gap between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel would be at least 2,000 years. And uh, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, But there is a separation of the 69th and 70th week. So the seven-year tribulation uh, is supported by the 70th week where each day of the week represents a year. Now the language of tribulation is not found in Daniel 9. So if you're looking for one verse that talks about a seven-year tribulation, here's the news I have for you. There isn't one. Not in the whole Bible will you find any reference to a seven-year tribulation. You can search from Genesis to the maps, or unless your maps are at the beginning, from the maps to Revelation. And you will not find any reference in any verse to a seven-year tribulation. Arriving at the teaching of a seven-year tribulation occurs by pulling from multiple places and building this teaching. And borrowing from the 70th week of Daniel, that's one place... And then in Matthew 24, in Matthew 24, where the Olivet Discourse is unfolding, Jesus is saying in Matthew 24, 21, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And this view of the future believes that that great tribulation has not been fulfilled in our past, but is future and is tied to the 70th week of Daniel. So the 70th week, seven years, is tied to a great tribulation and viewed then in one big phrase, the seven-year tribulation. And sometimes that second three and a half years, the emphasis of egregious suffering, the the greatness of the great tribulation unfolding then. Uh, So those are the biblical passages borrowed from the Old and New Testaments to build a teaching about the Great Tribulation. Daniel 9.27, Matthew 24.21. Now then we must ask the question, how early was this taught in church history? We must ask, is this a deeply embedded view that you can show taught throughout the centuries of the church? And the answer is, it is not a deeply embedded view taught throughout the history of the church. Like the rapture teaching, a seven-year tribulation tied to the rapture does not appear in church history before the work of John Nelson Darby in the 1800s. It is not an old view. There is no confession in church history that teaches it. There is no creed in church history that proclaims it. This is a view that originates recently. And I say recently because of the scheme of church history, the perspective as a whole. That means the historical origin of this view um, is tied to the origin of the rapture. Um, I tried to show you historically, when we were looking at understanding the rapture origin together, that uh, John Nelson Darby believed there would be a secret taking away of the church and that the 70th week of Daniel referred to what happened right after that rapture. A terrible time of suffering that the church would not have to endure. Um, Now... That's the historical origin of the view, and you cannot find it taught with a rapture and seven-year tribulation prior to the 1800s. That doesn't mean it can't be true. Somebody might push back and say, well, maybe someone hasn't simply discerned that and rightly understood it. Okay, decent pushback. Just as long as we can recognize historically when it does originate. Now, um, I still think there is great theological and, uh, and interpretive risk in opting for views of things that are not rooted throughout the history of the church, but rather come recently and from particular individuals who believe they have discovered something about the people of God. And John Nelson Darby believed in the early 1800s that he has discovered that there are actually two peoples of God, the Jews and the church, and that God has different plans for the church and that we are currently in the church age. Um, I think there are a myriad of problems with that. But uh, I want to offer a a stronger interpretation of the passages mentioned. Daniel 9 and Matthew 24. So I do want to return to those. What would be... Ways of looking at um, Daniel 9 that would be more faithful to the text. And uh, the same that we want to consider about Matthew 24. So the stronger interpretations of the passage. We're going to spend some time here. And if you'd like, looking in Daniel 9 in a copy of your Bible might be helpful. So in Daniel 9, the prophet is praying in exile in Babylon... That has been um, recently overcome by the Persian Empire. And Daniel is ready for the exiled captives to be released to return to the promised land and rebuild their ruined temple and the walls around Jerusalem and restore proper worship in the promised land. Daniel is praying in Daniel 9 in the first 19 verses for the Lord to forgive the transgressions of the Israelites and show favor by uh, overcoming their current exiled state. Now, the Lord is going to answer that prayer. The Israelites will return to the promised land um, when the Persians have uh, given them permission to do so. Gabriel, in verse 20, comes with an answer to Daniel's prayer. And the answer begins... In verse 24, seventy weeks or seventy-sevens are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish transgression, to bring an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Uh, In this opening verse of the vision, the very complicated seventy weeks of Daniel, I simply want to say that verse 24 is a positive answer to Daniel's prayer, an answer that extends long beyond the days of Daniel. What chapter 9:24 is answering is he's saying, I think Daniel, what your people need is not just a return to the land. They need their sin atoned for, they need righteousness counted to them, and that's going to require a work of atonement that I'm going to bring about. And rather than these 70 years of captivity leading to liberation, return to the land. I want to talk to you about 77s. And there seems to be a a numerical play at at work there where there is this grand jubilee and liberation held out for the people. And that 77s are aiming not at a seven-year tribulation ultimately, but rather the work of atonement and righteousness and forgiveness. Daniel 9 in verse 24 and following, I think, lay out A series of years and events that take us to the Lord Jesus. So here's one place where I will immediately differ with this outline. In this scheme of the future, it is viewed that 69 weeks of the 70 have been fulfilled by the work of Christ. That that is the culmination of that 69th week. And that we await the 70th. My read of Daniel 9... Argues that the 70 weeks of Daniel have been fulfilled in our past, and we do not a- await a 70th week. That the 70th week that is spoken about in, in Daniel 9:27, where someone comes to make a strong covenant with the many is Daniel 9's way of saying what Isaiah says, Jeremiah says, and Ezekiel says, and that is the coming son of David is going to make a new covenant, if you're in Jeremiah 31, or he would be a suffering servant dying for the many in Isaiah 52 and 53, or in Ezekiel 36 and 37, he would be the new David to bring everlasting peace. Daniel 9 says... That this figure is coming who will make a strong covenant with the many. And this language of covenant making is tied to the same prophetic passages outside Daniel looking to the work of the Messiah. This is a very different read from this scheme on the board. Because what I'm suggesting is that this seven year tribulation is not about a time of suffering that the church is spared from where the Antichrist is at work on earth but rather a 70th week that culminates in atonement and righteousness accomplished by the anointed one, Jesus, the Messiah. So I think the stronger interpretation of Daniel 9 is not to separate the 70th week. This view requires a separation. But if you look in Daniel 9, there's no reason in Daniel 9 to separate the first seven from the next 62 from the 70th. They all occur in sequence as they're broken down by the writer. And there's no indication of a gap historically between any of the sections that are mentioned. We need to know that because here's what this view requires. That there was no gap between the first seven and the next 62. 69 weeks have unfolded. But then there's inserted a 2,000 plus year gap. Where do you get that from Daniel 9? Answer? You don't. That's not in Daniel 9. The sequence and chronology of the events and numbers seem to suggest a unity of the overall weeks. And that would be one way that this view of the future deviates from that reading of Daniel 9. Now, um, having spoken briefly about Daniel 9, I want to think about Matthew 24. Uh, I'm going to turn there in my Bible. So if you want to turn to Matthew 24, this is Matthew's account of what Mark 13 and Luke 21 also talk about, the Olivet Discourse. And the idea of this scheme on the board is that Matthew 24 is talking about something future from our perspective, the work of something that would be in the years of tribulation. And I want to suggest to us, these words were future from the days of Jesus and the fulfillment is past from our perspective. In Matthew 24, they leave the temple in verse 1 And his disciples uh, come and point out to him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 2, You see all these, don't you? Truly I say to you, there will not be one left here, one stone on another, that is not thrown down. Jesus and his disciples have just come from the temple. His disciples have just referenced these buildings. And Jesus promises their destruction. Now, fast forward from the days of Jesus. When did the temple fall? Well, the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD. And that means when Jesus is talking to his disciples about the temple destruction, it's future from their vantage point. But it is not future from our vantage point. We know historically that the generation of the disciples saw the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. In fact, they come on the Mount of Olives with Jesus privately and they say, Teach us about these things. And he starts to tell them, see that no one leads you astray in verse 4. Many are going to come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. This must take place. The end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginnings of birth pains. These various verses leading up to the great tribulation language of verse 21 are not things that are entirely future from our perspective. You can look in the first century accounts of the life of the apostles and even into the book of Acts, and you will see that messianic pretenders, wars and rumors of wars, the rise and fall of kingdoms occurred in the first century of the generation of the church. And we might look at this and say, well, there are things like that that still go on and things like that that no doubt will go on. Fair enough. It's just to say Matthew 24 is not entirely some future text. It instead is something teaching what was already happening in the days of Jesus' disciples. In fact, in verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Many will fall away. So he starts talking about people being delivered over and put to death. He's telling his disciples, okay, first century hearers of those those words on the Mount of Olives. He's saying, they're going to put some of you to death. Which means they, in their first century context, are expecting a fulfillment of these words. Then you open to the book of Acts. And what do you find? You find them preaching and being arrested and jailed and chased and persecuted and hated and turned over and betrayed. You start to see in the book of Acts the kinds of things fulfilled Jesus warned about in the Gospels. Uh, Look with me in, in verses 15 and following. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Verses 15 and 16 are about a particular desecration of the temple. And there's a a phrase here, abomination of desolation, that occurs in the book of Daniel chapter 11. In Daniel 11, there's a prophecy of a future Greek king who would defile the temple, and it occurred in 167 B.C. In 167 B.C., Antiochus, Epiphanes, desecrated the Jerusalem temple, fulfilling what Daniel 11 prophesied, and Jesus' readers have that history. When he says to them, let the reader understand, he's expecting that this would not be words that only 2,000 years later our contemporaries would be able to understand, But rather, the gospel readers in the first century would be able to see in the book of Matthew what is meant because of their shared history. And this means that just as they have a desecration of the temple in their past, it will happen again and even in a more final way. In fact, he says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let one who's on the housetop not go in to take what's in his house. This is a regional judgment. And the reason we know it's a regional judgment is because he says, if you're in Judea, you need to get out of there, flee to the mountains. Something about the region of Judea was not going to be a safe place to be. And the Jewish historian Josephus helps us realize that in the years leading up to 70 AD, namely 66 to 70 AD, there were wars with the Jews and the Romans that were horrific if you were a citizen of Judea. He says, when this starts happening, you need to get out of there. And he says, don't even go back in your house. And then in verse 19, if you're pregnant and if you're a nursing infant, uh, he says, alas for those w- women who are pregnant and nursing infants in those days, because if they need to run from a region, it's going to be difficult to flee quickly if you're pregnant or carrying small children. In verse 20, pray that your flight might not be in winter or on a Sabbath, various seasonal or time uh, logistics that could be challenging for leaving a region. And then in verse 21, the buildup leads to this. For then, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and no, never will be. Jesus is talking about a regional judgment, which, which encompasses great tribulation. And if they're in Judea, they need to get out. And if they're nursing infants or they're pregnant women, they're going to have a harder time. Verse 21 occurs in a particular context. The language of great tribulation is about the suffering endured by the citizens of this land in in Israel leading up to 70 A.D. That is what Matthew 24 verse 21 is about. And you say, well, wait a second. In verse 21, it has this language, doesn't it? This is great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. So that sounds unprecedented historically. It sounds like the worst kind of thing they would ever experience. But what if I told you that that language is hyperbole used in the Old Testament to refer to a surpassingly great, horrific season of judgment? In other words, listen to some Old Testament passages that can temper, I think, an overreading of Matthew 24:21. In Exodus, in Exodus chapter nine. About this time tomorrow, God says to Moses, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as has never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Do you hear the rhythm of the language? Such as has not been until now. And then in Exodus 10, verse 14, The locusts came up over the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such as a dense swarm of locusts had never been before and ever will again. So there's this language of never having been and never will be. Exodus 11 verse 6. There shall be such a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as there never has been nor ever will be again. These are just three quick references from a regional historical judgment, the plagues. These are not worldwide events. This was the events on Egypt. But they're described in ways that speak of them in a horrific way, using language of hyperbole. In Joel, the prophet Joel says in chapter 2, verse 2, that an army would come like has never been, nor will be again after them in the years of all generations. In Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 9, God says, because of your abominations, I will do with you what I've never yet done, and the like of which I will never do again. You you hear that, that rhythm Never has it been this way, never will it be again. This language occurs regarding Old Testament historical judgments that have nothing to do with the end of all things. These are ways of talking that are prophetic. And the prophets use language of intensification for the imagination to paint the horrific picture on the horizon. So what is Jesus doing? in the Olivet discourse. Jesus is talking about the future like a prophet. He is prophesying an event that's taking place using Old Testament language that in Matthew 24:21 the destruction of Jerusalem can be described like this, that it is what never has been and never will be. That's the way the Old Testament talks about multiple historical local judgments. Consider Daniel in Daniel 9, 12. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what's been done against Jerusalem. Daniel's reflecting on their exile to Babylon. In Daniel 12, verse one, there shall come a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. Over and over again, I'm simply wanting to highlight Matthew twenty four twenty one is not unique language. It's very particular language used by prophets to speak about a coming historical judgment. And in each of those Old Testament cases, we know of the fulfillments. The Exodus plagues, the Babylonians who captured Israel and the Southern Kingdom, in Jerusalem and exiled the people. All of those things that these, that this very uh, uh, strong and, and hyperbolic language speak about. All right, so what I mean is, Daniel 9, these 70 weeks, are fulfilled in the atoning work of Christ who brought jubilee and liberation for sinners. And the 70th week should not be detached with a 2,000 year gap plus awaiting a seven year tribulation. And then Matthew 24, 21, which talks about a great tribulation. That's not something the church in Matthew 24 was spared from they lived through the years of 66 to 70 AD with the wars between the Jews and the Romans. So how should we consider this tribulation as a teaching? I want to rethink it in terms of rethinking the popular notion of it. I've tried to challenge the, the, uh, the teaching about a rapture from multiple texts, and last time we were together on an end times issue, I offered different and what I hope were stronger, persuasive understandings of what are sometimes teaching or passages used to support a rapture. And when we rethink the tribulation, how should we understand it? First of all, we should not understand the notion of tribulation as a seven-year period. There is no verse that clearly teaches that. And I tried to show that the verses marshaled together to teach that have, I think, more compelling ways of being Read. So we should not understand it as a seven year period. We should not connect it to a period uh, following a rapture and then followed into this great tribulation. Instead, we should expect to go through suffering and tribulation and persecution as Christians. And I'm not saying that's a comfortable notion, a desirable notion. But historically, we see that the people of God have continued to go through periods of persecution and suffering. And that this is exactly what's been predicted by the New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We could conclude from that, That Peter says in the first century, You know what's not strange for believers to experience? Tribulation. Suffering and hardship in this world that has the seed of the serpent turning against God and his people. In Revelation 2, verse 22... One of the seven churches are addressed by this letter. And in Revelation 2 verse 22, Jesus says, behold, I will throw her Jezebel onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw them into great tribulation until they repent of her works. There were various churches, right, that Jesus says, I have something against you. And the teaching of Jezebel, teaching that associated with idolatry and immorality, apparently there were people in Asia Minor that were starting to link up with and sync up with this disastrous spiritual disease. And Jesus says, I will throw these professing Christians into tribulation. In chapter 714 of Revelation, there are martyrs who come out of the great tribulation These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, Revelation 7.14 says. And they've washed their robes and made them white. The language of coming out of the great tribulation is very important to follow. The original language bears this out. Coming out of means to go through and emerge vindicated. It does not mean to be spared from the great tribulation. Revelation 7.14 is about martyrs. Who have gone through and have come out of great tribulation. And they are those referenced in Revelation chapter 7. Why should we not be surprised at this? Because Jesus says in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. In John 15, 20. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In John 16, 33. In the world you will have tribulation, he says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul teaches in Acts 14.22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So Peter is right, isn't he? Don't be surprised when a fiery trial comes upon us to test us as though something strange were happening. Think about the book of Hebrews written to those who are suffering and have the cloud of witnesses that walked by faith and who in Hebrews 12, the readers now, are told to consider Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And so they are to look at their Christian lives as not something that's going to lead to an escape from suffering. And when I hear this particular vision of the future taught, It is sometimes taught with a slant, a kind of view toward Christian living, where, listen, Christians, the Lord is going to spare us from tribulation and suffering. Our future is that this seven years will not be what we go through. But I've challenged the scriptures used to support this, and I've tried to show that it doesn't have great historical backing at all. Instead, what is clear in the scriptures, in the words of Jesus and his apostles is that in the New Testament, the church of Jesus Christ should expect opposition, hostility, revilement, persecution, and even periods where they face martyrdom. The Apostle Paul asks the right question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Notice what the question must imply. The question must imply that an experience that church, churches throughout history will be able to say we have gone through include things like distress, and famine, and nakedness, and danger, and tribulation, and sword. So Paul's question is, shall those things separate us? From the love of Christ. And his answer, of course, is no. Nothing present, nothing future, nothing high, nothing deep, nothing distressful or tribulation-like. None of these things can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul aims to strengthen our perseverance. Not to stir within us a hope that, hey, you know what? There might be some really bad times coming But we're not going to have to go through those things. Instead, we should expect that the Lord Jesus will come and that the Lord Jesus will come to receive his bride who has walked through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. So friends, though this popular understanding is one that we hear taught and that is published in all sorts of best-selling end times books on Walmart shelves and Amazon and, uh, and popular in movies and fiction series... Um, I do think we want to keep in mind here, is there supporting biblical passages that are best read and interpreted as supporting this? I'm challenging that idea. Is there a historical origin of this view that would anchor it throughout the history of the church to be something soundly and faithfully taught in creeds and confessions and discipleship? And the answer there is no, it is not but rather rooted in the 1800s with a man, along with others, named John Nelson Darby. There are better interpretations of these passages. And instead, we should think of tribulation as something God will not spare us from, but will preserve us faithfully through all the way. All the way. That through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. And God's grace has brought me safe thus far and His grace will lead me home. We sing this because we know that the Bible teaches we are not those promised ease and a future spared from great distress and persecution. We are rather... Those who will experience nothing that shall ever separate us from the covenant faithfulness of the Lord Jesus. And we will be raised unto everlasting glory. So we have a great hope of a coming Savior who will bring judgment and resurrection and make all things new. And friend, that is a view of the future worth hoping in and rejoicing in. And it is one the Bible certainly soundly teaches. Let's pray together.